Hey, let's have a prayer. God, we give you praise. Uh, just wow, just to be in this moment with you, this powerful time of worship. Uh, it is our, our desire that you be honored and glorified. And as we pause for this time that we've set aside to, uh, to sing to you and to learn from you, we open up your word and we just ask that you have your way with us. Speak to our hearts. Help us to leave this place and, and, and apply your word in ways that, that not only uh, improve our lives, but uh, transforms the lives of your people, of others, to make a difference in the world that we live in. We dedicate and devote this time full of you. May my words be your words. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Do me a favor, Meg, and hit home. Hit the home button and take me back to the first slide. So we're kind of in between um, teaching series. So we just wrapped up. Um, what was the name of that series, Rachel? Living Like Jesus. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. And then we're getting ready to start into this long trek uh, of Lenten season, uh, leading us up to uh, uh, the resurrection and the big day after the resurrection, Humor, Humor Sunday. I know you guys want that again, right? But that that's obviously doesn't overshadow Easter Sunday no, in no, no way whatsoever. But anyway, be that as it may. Today, I thought we would take a look at the Christian calendar. We're going to do the one-off today. So we're gonna, you know, anybody know what today is on the Christian calendar? Wow. <laughs> oh, you cheaters. Oh, man. Who, who really knew that? I, I, I bet you did. You, no? Really? Okay. Well, I didn't until I looked, so I can't say I was any better than you were. But it is Transfiguration Sunday. So the, uh, we're going to take a look at the mountain. We're going to walk up there. We're going to talk, talk about what happened up there between Jesus and the disciples and who else was there. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story of the Transfiguration, I'm excited that I get to be the one to, uh, to uh, tell the story for the first time. I hope I don't mess it up. Uh, the Transfiguration is one of the key events in the life of Jesus, uh, up, right up there with the birth and the baptism and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. Uh, the story of the Transfiguration of Christ is contained in, in all of the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, these three books of the New Testament are referred to as the Synoptics because they are similar in nature. All right. The word synoptic itself means a, a common viewpoint or perspective. They contain similar stories, similar, similar timelines, and in some cases, word-for-word -word similarities. Now, in contrast, the Gospel of John seems to stand alone. Okay, it has uh, more distinct properties. Not to say that there aren't some similarities, but nothing like the three synoptics. Now, the synoptics seemingly have a common source that scholars uh, have debated for years uh, what that is. Most believe that the book of Mark itself is the root source that Matthew and Luke were built from, but because Matthew and Luke have much greater content, there has to be at least one other source, if not more. They call that the Q source. That's why they have more content. Now, this is all just nerdy stuff that nobody really cares about. I'm not going to get in too much uh, too deep in the weeds here for you. I just wanted to just kind of point out to the, the, that we're going to look at the parallels of the synoptics this morning, which my preacher, my preacher instructor told me never to do. <laughs> Rachel's over there going, yeah, mine did too. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> but this, this is way more than we can unpack in just a few short minutes on how the synoptics came into being or the similarities of the synoptics, but I just wanted to make you aware. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, however, as our baseline text 
but I'm going to be pulling a little bit from Matthew. All right? Y'all with me so far? Good. Y'all want to read? All right, let's try it. We're going to leap. You don't have to. I can read to you. That was much bigger at home. <laughs> About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had done. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. All right, now, I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've really gotten into Christian art. Um, I, I love, especially the ancient stuff, I love the attention to detail, how it, how it goes and it grabs the details of Scripture and it illustrates them in a way in just, in just one snapshot uh, to, to help tell the story. Now, this, this one here was taken, this is, uh, was created in the 13th century during the Byzantine Empire. This is actually on display at the Louvre. Anybody ever been to the Louvre? All right, did you see this? Remember that? You didn't really go. No, I'm kidding. I, I really, I've never been there. I don't know. I just, I assume they probably have lots of Christian art there on display. It'd be easy to overlook. Um, as you can see, this one, we have Jesus kind of floating in the middle. And then on the right, we see Moses. We know this is Moses because uh, you can't really see it here. It's hard to see. But he is holding a tablet under his arm. Okay, so these are the tablets he brought down from the mountain. And then uh, to Jesus' right is Elijah, and then we can assume that the three figures at the bottom are the disciples, Peter, James, and John. This one here was uh, painted by Raphael, a famous painter and Ninja Turtle. And, and again, we got, this is kind of this, the, the European Swedish hair model version of Jesus floating in the air. He went, hey. And, and to his right, we see Elijah, and on the left, again, we see Moses holding the tablets. And underneath, right directly underneath, we see three disciples. Now, what else do we see that's not right? Yeah, all these people weren't there. So this is not an accurate. Uh, Raphael kind of missed it here a little bit. And this one's more, uh, more modern. This, is, this was uh, developed by a, a guy by the name of Jason Jenicky. I really like this one. I think this is probably more accurate. Uh, Jesus isn't floating. The scripture doesn't really say that they're up in the air floating around. Uh, but we still see Elijah, and Moses still has those tablets. And, and, and in this one, Moses is kind of follically impaired, so who knew? And then we got the, the three disciples, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John. don't really know which one, which one is which. So cool stuff. I just wanted to show that to you. Now, the scripture this morning starts out with the phrase, about eight days after he said this. 
which is a very strange place to start. It's kind of like going to the movie, and the first scene that pops up, you see a caption, eight days later. Eight days after what? Well, all we got to do is back up a little bit in uh, Luke's gospel, and uh, we'll take a look at that. So eight days after Jesus said what, the answer to that is prior to this moment, prior to this transfiguration story, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, and, and he asks them this simple question. Now, this is a story of Peter's proclamation. Most of you are aware of this story. Who do people say that I am? And that's when they went on to say, well, you know, some people say that, um, that you're John the Baptist. So, some people say that you are Elijah. Still others say that you're a prophet from long ago that's come back to life. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter makes the proclamation. He's like, well, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. I will change your name to Peter. On this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Then he goes on to uh, make the first prediction of the passion, of his death, of his crucifixion. And that's when Peter kind of says, oh, no, Jesus, that's not how this is going to happen. And Jesus rebukes him and, and that so on and so forth. But he warns him, and he says it like this in Luke's gospel, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But then he closes with this. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Some of you here are fixing to see the kingdom of God before you die. And then eight days later, this thing happens. Now, the other two synoptic gospels, uh, Mark and Matthew, says six days later. There's a little bit of a disparity there. Now, the theory behind this is perhaps that the author of Luke was including the time that it took to travel to the top of the mountain, where Mark and Matthew were, were simply stating that six days uh, is the time uh, that they left, not the time that they arrived. So, Matthew and, or uh, Luke, Dr. Luke is including travel time in his text, so thank you, Dr. Luke, for that. Now let's finish unpackaging this. Jesus sets the stage, and he grabs how many of his disciples? Three of them. Now, some would say that these were his more intimate followers, and they certainly seem to be in the fore, forefront of most of the accounts that we find in the gospel. We see Peter, James, and John all throughout the stories, right? Now, why did he grab three? What's, what's important about that number? This is significant because Jewish law dictates that two to three witnesses were required for a proper testimony, for a proper witness, okay? For it, for it to hold up, that there had to be two to three. Now, now th this is uh, something that Paul even referenced uh, in 2 Corinthians in one of his letters, and he was, he was referencing the book, of, the, the book of Deuteronomy on another matter completely unrelated to the transfiguration, but he did reference the, the, the law when he said this, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Jesus grabs three witnesses to this thing that's fixing to happen. Of course, they have no idea. They're clueless. Okay. The text states that Jesus took his disciples to pray Where? On the mountain, yeah. You guys are hanging in there. Come on, stay with me. Now, none of the Gospels are specific as to which mountain. And for centuries, uh, scholars have assumed it to be this place called Mount Tabor, or Mount Tabor, however you want to pronounce it, mostly because it was a common place, it was a common destination uh, for pilgrimage in that time. And it was the highest. It was the highest mountain. 
More recently, others have argued that it might have been Mount Hermon because uh, Mount Hermon was closer to where Jesus was at before all this happened in, in Caesarea Philippi. So it is a closer trek than Mount Tabor, but we don't really know for sure because none of the scriptures really identify which mountain it was. However, if you were to travel to the top of Mount Tabor today, you will run into this place called the Church of Transfiguration, which is a monument built to commemorate the supernatural event. Has anybody been there? Is it beautiful? Yeah, I bet. It looks beautiful in the picture. It looks huge. Is it really that big? Yeah. Very cool place, apparently. <clears throat> this is a monument to the, to the supernatural event. Now, now, the point is, Jesus wanted a, a place of solitude to go and to pray and, and to, to be away from things, to get away from the crowds, to go and to commune with God. And he takes Peter, James, and John. Now, he's got his witnesses. Now, many believe, by the way, I know most of you here might agree, that uh, mountain's a good place to solitude, a good place to pray. There's a lot of temples and monasteries that get built high on mountaintops. Another good place to go to is the beach. Who likes to go to the beach to find God? All right, yeah. Well, now, as, as followers of Jesus, we see here that Jesus, he could have gone to the beach, but he chose to go to the mountain. I mean, it's probably a shorter distance to get to the beach than either of the other two mountains. So as, as followers of Jesus, I think it's important for us to, uh, to recognize here that Jesus settles the debate once and for all. He likes the mountains, not the beach. Just saying. In fact... We can find these glorious sightings throughout Scripture, and they are also on top of mountaintops. And we'll talk more about that here in a minute. So Jesus leads three of his guys up the mountain. They get to the top, and Jesus starts praying. Now, you know, when Jesus starts praying, it's unlike anybody else that you've ever heard pray. I mean, it's, it's intense. It's hard. It's long. It's emotional. It's powerful. It, and it's, it is just so overwhelming and powerful and long that the disciples can't stay awake. I mean, this is not the first time. This is, I mean, this the first time in Scripture. It's not the only time in Scripture that the disciples fell asleep during Jesus' prayer time. Anybody remember where else that happened? Yeah, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they had a hard time staying awake when, when Jesus was praying, just like some of you today are having a hard time staying awake. <laughs> they kept falling asleep. But the text says that the, apparent, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So when the disciples woke up, this is what they awoke to. This is what they saw. And he was also uh, doing what? He was chatting with a couple of people. Now, it probably took them a while to figure this out or recognize. But he was, he was having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. They were, they were talking about the things that were to come. You know, this, this long journey that Jesus has to go down, this path that he has to go down to reach to accomplish what he set out to accomplish, to achieve his mission. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Many would argue that Moses and Elijah both represented the, both the law and the prophets. Moses, of course, was the herald of the original Hebrew law. Remember the tablets under the arm? Up until that moment, Moses was such a key part of the Jewish culture and religion. And Elijah as well was considered the greatest of all the prophets and also a key figure in Jewish culture 
and religion. In fact, the, the disciples earlier just told Jesus that many believe that he was Elijah that had come back. So maybe Elijah's presence there that day was to disprove this theory amongst the crowds, that Jesus was, in fact, not Elijah, but Jesus was the Messiah. There is one more possibility, though. Moses and Elijah both share something. They have this thing in common. Moses and Elijah were both given a glimpse of God's glory. And in both events, guess where they're at? Up on the mountain. Now these, these, these God experiences, these, these encounters of the holy, there's a word for this. It's called theophany. Y'all say theophany. Theophany, it means the appearance of the divine. And maybe it could be a literal visual appearance, appearance of God or some audible uh, encounter that, that someone has with God. But whatever the case may be, these, these mountaintop experiences, these are called theophanies. Now Moses had his theophany in the book of Exodus. Moses asked God to show him his glory. Let me see what you look like. And then God said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And the reason for that, as he told him earlier, is if anybody sees me, they will surely die. Elijah had his theophany in 2 Kings. The Lord told Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. I mean, we could, there's a lot of meat right here. We can just sit here for a while. Can't do it, though. When Elijah heard this, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave, and then a voice, this, this whisper said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And then they go on and they have a conversation. Go back and read it. But, but you see, both Moses and Elijah, they had this mountaintop experience, but neither one of them were able to see God's glory in its fullness. Until now. Now they're able to see the fullness of God shown through the face of the Son of God, the Messiah, through Jesus. And of course, all of this is lost on the disciples. And, and, and I guess Peter must have been just a little starstruck because when he woke up, he begins to speak in typical Peter fashion by saying the wrong thing. He says, Let's put, up, let's put up three shelters in some translations, three tabernacles. One for each of you, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. I mean, Peter usually means well, right? But, I mean, I, I can relate to Peter probably more than any other character because I'm always pulling my foot out of my mouth. But there's a lot of thoughts on, 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 the, on why Peter might have suggested this. Some say Peter was just simply coming out of a deep sleep, and he literally... As was parenthetically stated to us earlier, he literally did not know what he was saying. You know, maybe he was just still so nappy-headed, he was just waking up, and he wakes up, and he sees all these bright lights. He's like, hey, Jesus, you want me to build something? Who knows? Some believe that Peter was so overwhelmed at the presence of these two key leaders of the Hebrew faith as shown in their glory 
that he wanted to build a place of worship. He wanted to build a tabernacle, not just a shelter, but a place to worship all three of them. Some believe that Peter's statement was drawn from the connection to the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's a, that's a really deep rabbit hole. I'm not, again, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to fit as much as I can here today, but um, some believe that he was just simply being polite, and he wanted to serve by creating a shelter for them so that they could hang out there, because that's really the point here is Peter didn't want to leave. He didn't want to leave the mountain. He would just want to stay up there. He was comfortable. He liked what was going on. And he just wanted to stay there for a while. But no sooner than he makes a suggestion, this cloud descends upon them. And not just any cloud. Matthew calls it a bright cloud. And then they hear the voice of God. And it says this, similar to the same voice during the baptism of Christ in the Jordan. The voice of God said, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Not Moses not Elijah. Listen to Jesus. This is the voice of God here answering Peter by letting him know that everybody present there, including Moses, including Elijah, and the disciples, everybody present there can't hold a torch to Jesus. Moses and Elijah may have been honored patriarchs in their past, but they are nothing today at this time compared to the Son of the living God. Peter missed that key point, but the voice of God set him straight. Now, Matthew's gospel, reading on, states that when the disciple heard the voice of God, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. I imagine I probably would too. But Jesus came and touched them, and he said, get up. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except for Jesus. And this pretty much ends the story of the transfiguration. Now, Peter later references the, this experience in one of the letters that he wrote, 2 Peter, where he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses to this majesty. We received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now, here's where I'm going to, I'm going to challenge conventional thinking in regards to the use of this word transfiguration. This event known as the Transfiguration, or more commonly referred to as the Transfiguration of Christ, I'm not sure that the use of that word is semantically accurate in this context. Now, let me explain. I'm not suggesting that Jesus didn't change. I'm not suggesting that these things described here didn't happen, or they didn't see things exactly as they saw them. But the word Transfiguration implies change from within. It's a different kind of metamorphosis. It's a transformation that happens from the inside out. It's a spiritual metamorphosis. It's not so much of an outward or physical change as it is a change that happens from the inside out. By definition, that's transfiguration. That's the difference between transformation and transfiguration. Now, here's where things get a little, little tricky because an understanding of the nature of Christ is really hard for our minds to grasp because we don't think of things this way. It's a lot like the Holy Trinity. We know it exists, okay? Uh, 
We confess this in our creeds. When we read it, we know it exists. We just don't know the how, the, why, the, how, the why, and the what's. The nature of Christ is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. Now this is important because what we're not saying is that Jesus was, was half God or half man. That's a really easy mistake to make. Jesus wasn't half God or half man. Or Jesus wasn't just a man that was uh, empowered or uh, consumed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was God and Jesus was man. Now as a deity... Jesus has always been in existence. The Son has always been there since the dawn of time. John's Gospel affirms this when, when he refers to Jesus as the Word. John's Gospel says, In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was God, and then the Word put on flesh. We call this the incarnation. We celebrate this at Advent. Paul tells us this in Colossians. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. When Jesus took on flesh, this, this moment that we celebrate called the incarnation, Jesus just, just didn't simply become fully human and shed his godness when he left glory. God taking on flesh was kind of the point, right? Fully God, fully human. So, so you see my confusion with the use of the word transfiguration is based on the suggestion that the divinity, divinity of Christ became manifest in him at that moment like it never existed in him before. It wasn't just on the mountain that Jesus was transfigured. I believe there was a transfiguration, though. I believe that spiritual change happened. But I believe it happened in the hearts of the onlookers. I believe the, transfigure, the true transfiguration that happened that day was with Peter and James and John. I believe it was the disciples who were changed. And I believe that in that moment, the glory of Christ that already existed revealed to them in the same way that it was revealed to the, to the pilgrims that walked on the road to Emmaus, in the same way it was revealed to Mary in the garden, in the same way it was revealed to the disciples, all of them later in the upper room. Up to this point, the disciples, they, they have seen Jesus as a man with the power of God, but they have not seen him as God. Why now? Why here? Well, the time and the place was right in accordance with the will of God. And I believe that the three eyewitnesses there that day, they needed to be removed from the world below. I believe their hearts needed to be made right. I believe they needed to have their eyes opened. And how cool is it that they were able to share this experience with Moses and Elijah? Now, I know many of you have your own mountaintop experiences. You know, these, these moments where no one can convince you otherwise that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you had an encounter with God. You had your own theophany. Maybe it was a mission trip or a youth rally or, or, or some experience that you had where you encountered God. And just like Peter, when we have those moments, we just kind of want to stay there, don't we? We don't want to leave. 
And, and when, we, when we finally do leave, we spend the rest of our lives trying to recreate these moments because they are so powerful. Trying to get back to that mountaintop, but you can't. You can't recreate a moment that you didn't create in the first place. We spend our lives trying to recreate them, but you can't. Now, you may have newer or different types of experiences, different encounters, but you can't recreate a moment that was created by God. And if you can recreate it, it probably wasn't created by God in the first place. But there is something there, isn't there? Something that we hunger, something that we long for. We seek it. We look for it in cathedrals. We look for it through pilgrimages. We look at it through Bible studies. We, we seek it every time we enter into this place. And right now as we speak, people are traveling thousands of miles to experience it in this little town called Wilmore. How many of you had a chance to check out what's going on at Asbury? Just in case you haven't been made aware, this all started... Uh, with a simple chapel service two Wednesdays ago, and just don't, can't explain what happened. A spark was lit that still burns. This, this time of worship never ended, and it has grown and grown beyond the confines of the building it started in, even beyond the confines of the campus itself. It is now happening in other campuses, and this is a very, very powerful thing that's going on. Now, a few days ago, um, this, by the way, this is a completely spontaneous, unstructured, unorganized event. Okay? No, nobody put this thing together. God put this thing together. Out of curiosity, I drove down there mostly, uh, like everybody else, but I was there because I wanted to have that, that mountaintop experience. I wanted to see what all the hubbub was about. Now, here's the thing. I know many of you want me to share with you my experience, but I'm not going to do that. Because I don't want to set up any expectations in your mind that might either uh, set you up for disappointment or diminish what God might have in store for you if you do go. I believe that these experiences are very personal and unique for all of us. And it's not fair to try to compare. I can tell you this, that it, that it is a very beautiful and powerful thing. And if you feel like God is leading you to come and to go, you should. I have no idea how much longer it's going to be going on. Uh, as a facilitator that was there when I was there mentioned, um, the master of the fire is God. So if you can fit it into your calendar, you might, might want to make it quick. But, it, but it, for many people right now, this is their mountaintop experience. All right, real quick, I believe that the story of the transfiguration teaches us a few things. First of all, we have to get up and go. We can't wait for the mountain to come to us. Okay, we gotta we gotta make that journey. We gotta climb to the top of the mountain. The, the, the next thing is we, we have to be conscious. We gotta wake up. We gotta be aware. We can't sleep through it. And I think oftentimes that's what happens. How many times do 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 we think maybe perhaps that we have had an encounter with the divine and completely missed it because we were looking at other things or not paying attention? Remember, God didn't come in an earthquake. God didn't come. Uh, in, in a strong wind. God came to Elijah in a whisper. And if, if you've got all this noise going on around you, how can you hear a whisper? We can't stay on the mountain. These experiences are great because they offer us a glimpse into eternity. 
but we can't stay there because our work here isn't done. Just like Jesus and his disciples couldn't stay on the mountain because they all had their own mission, so do we. And we need to remind ourselves that as glorious as these moments are, the best is yet to come. When we see Jesus as, as a man, all things that he said and he did, all of his teaching, everything about the way that he lived is truly inspiring. But it's not until we see Jesus as God that he starts to transform our hearts and our lives. When Jesus is glorified, the power and the presence of sin are nullified. And we might be brought into a state of glory ourselves. Jesus came from glory so that he could lead us into an eternal glory with God. His glory is revealed to us so that the world may come to see it through us. Jesus transforms us so that we may transform the world. Through love, grace, mercy, compassion, kindness. The love of God shown through us to change the world. God's glory is revealed to the world through his followers, when we live and love and look like Jesus by listening to him and following his example. The glory of God fulfilled in us for all eternity is on its way. But until then, those mountaintop experiences are pretty cool, aren't they? Drink them up while you can. Stay awake and look for them. Make the journey. But don't stay there too long. Let's pray. Most gracious God, there, there are no doubt so many ways that you try to connect with your people. That you want to reveal your glory to us. Forgive us for the times that we miss them. Forgive us for the simple things that we overlook. Thank you. Thank you for seeking to commune with your children. Thank you that you want to be an active part of our daily walk. Help us to continue to surrender. Help us to find those times and those moments that we can give to you fully and completely, that we can stop and listen for that gentle whisper. We love you and we praise you and we ask this in your holy name.